The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're going to be in that Christmas chapter, Revelation chapter 12. Wait, why, why are you... I knew some people were going to laugh. I am not kidding. Revelation 12. Listen to this. Revelation 12, verse 5. I'm just going to read it. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That sounds like Jesus. Absolutely it is. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And we've got one you can borrow. We've got, looks like a couple on this side. And so Revelation chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Before we get there, I do want to refer to a few passages in the Old Testament that are very important that are going to lay the foundation of Revelation chapter 12. Once again... What I said last week and I think several weeks previous, if you do not have a basic understanding of the Old Testament, some of these chapters are just going to totally confuse you and you're not going to know what in the world John the Apostle is talking about. Or you're going to have a hard time figuring it out because especially in Revelation 12, uh, the foundation of 12 is all in the Old Testament and it's explicitly stated and found in the Old Testament. So if if you're a good student in the Old Testament, reading Revelation 12 and interpreting it is kind of a no-brainer. Um, if you don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, you might get caught up in fanciful interpretations, given over to allegory, and you're going to be dead wrong and end up with really bad theology, which has happened for 2,000 years plus. So in light of that, if you do have a Bible, follow along with me on these very important passages. I can't refer to them all. I said time and time again that the book of Revelation has hundreds of references, allusions, and even direct direct quotes of references uh, from the Old Testament. So Revelation is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I don't even have time in each sermon to reference all those Old Testament passages that are being addressed by John and really by God. But just a few that I think are important and will kind of give give us a broader perspective of Revelation 12. So starting in Genesis 12. I'm going to go to Genesis 12, then I'm going to go to Genesis 37, which is probably the most important one today. Genesis 12, then we'll go to Genesis 37, Psalm 2, and then in the book of Daniel, just to prepare you. If I were to ask you what is the most important chapter in Genesis, I would say Genesis 12. Clearly, it's transitional, it's a hinge on the book, pretty much I guess you could say that the rest of the Old Testament is a commentary and an expansion of the truth found in Genesis 12. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. For the first 11 chapters, God is dealing with the nations in general, and then God zeroes in on a very specific person who would become a very specific race of people known as the Jews or the Hebrews or the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And so this is where God intervenes in history and saves this pagan man who's 75 years old, who's an idol worshiper living in Babylon. And his name is Abram. And God calls Abram to himself. And that's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let's look at it. And the Lord God, or Yahweh, said to Abram when he was a 75-year-old man in Babylon as a pagan idol worshiper, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. He's saying, leave Babylon, or Ur of the Chaldees, and go up to the land I will show you, which will become Israel eventually, but is the land of Canaan at the time, modern-day Israel. So God's going to move him over 500 miles, which would become the promised land. So leave your land, leave your home, leave your relatives. And here's the covenant, verse 6, and it's I will, I will. God, God is initiating this. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Not maybe... These are promises that God will fulfill. And I will make you a great nation. That was the promise right there. To one man, God started a great nation. That nation became Israel. We know that from the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. That's the first promise. I will make you a great nation. Israel is a great nation. Has been for 4,000 years. Will continue to be into the future. That is God's perspective. Israel is a great nation. Israel is the apple of God's eye. Israel is precious. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Abram, I'm going to make your name great. And so you, Abram, shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And when he's saying you, 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 uh, you must include in that the nation of Israel. Abraham and the nation of Israel are inseparable. If you want to throw in the word Jews there, throw it in. I will bless those who bless the Jews. And the one who curses the Jews, I will curse. And in you, in the nation of Israel, from the bloodline of the Jews and starting with Abraham, all the families of the earth, that's the Gentiles included, that would be me, that would be you if you know Christ. The entire earth is going to be blessed through the loins of Abraham because from the loins of Abraham came the Messiah. That's the Abrahamic covenant. This is a promise of a coming Messiah that would come through the Jewish line, through the descendancy of Abraham and the nation of Israel. This is amazing. God has not relinquished or reneged on this promise to Abraham and the nation of Israel. And he's fulfilled it incrementally. He's fulfilled it most of all by the first coming of Christ. He will continue to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant by the second coming of Christ and even other ways. Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of the entire Old Testament, the entire scheme of what God is doing throughout world history. It is the fulfillment uh, that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. So that needs to be in the background of what we're thinking. Now, more specifically, go to Genesis chapter 37. So Abraham has... A, God begins to fulfill that promise. He has to give Abraham a descendant, right? Because if God's going to make Abraham a nation, what do you need? You need people, descendants. And so... Every time Abraham has a legitimate descendant or offspring, that's fulfilling the promise of God. So Jacob gave birth uh, to Isaac and to Jacob uh, was also a descendant. And so it's through these descendants of Abraham, God is fulfilling this Abrahamic covenant to make him a great nation. And that's where we end up in Genesis 37. God begins to formulate the foundation of that nation of Israel where there's 70 people who become the core of the nation of Israel. Then in the book of Exodus tells us there are now almost 2 million Jews and he's going to do it through the descendants of Abraham. And so Abraham has a son, and his name is Isaac. And then Isaac has sons, and the, the blessed son uh, by God's choice is Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver and liar for at least 40 years of his life, because that's what Jacob means. That was prophetic on God's part. Jacob the deceiver. Hollywood didn't invent that just because it's the title of a movie. God did. Jacob the deceiver got saved at age 40 when he wrestled with God. And then God changed his name when he got saved to Israel, the one who strives with God. So Jacob became Israel. And then Israel had a whole bunch of kids, 12 sons in particular, and out of those 12 sons came the nation of Israel. And one of those 12 sons was a son named Joseph. He was one of the younger sons. And his other 11 brothers didn't like him. As a matter of fact, Joseph's 10 older brothers, I should say, 10 older brothers, uh, didn't like Joseph. They hated him. They were jealous of Joseph. Uh, Joseph had one younger brother. And so that's the context of Genesis 37. So this blessed son named Joseph starts to have dreams. God gave him these dreams. He had a dream in verse 5 uh, of a prophecy. Then he has another dream, and that's what I want to focus on, uh, Genesis 37, verse 9. Joseph, he's 17 years old. He's a teenager. And, you know, teenagers, they have dreams all the time about how great they are, right? This one was actually true. Inflated view of self. No, this is from God. Verse 9. Joseph had another dream. Keep in mind that his brothers hated his guts. Hated? Yes. Verse 5 says hated. So he's having, he has a dream from God. Now he still had another dream and he told it to his brothers. I know what it's like to talk to five older brothers and get beat up for it. Did that for 18 years. It hurts. He has 10 older brothers. So he tells him this dream and he says, Lo, get a hold of this, guys. Older brothers. I have had still another dream about how great I'm going to be. And behold, the sun and the moon. Is there anything greater than the sun out there in the natural world? No. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars. 11 stars that it's referring to his 11 brothers. The sun, that's his dad, Jacob. The moon, that's mommy. 11 stars. His 11 brothers, 10 older brothers, one younger brother. They were bowing down to me. How arrogant. But this was in his dream. I have crazy dreams all the time. This one was true for Joseph. Verse 10. He related it to his father, Jacob, and his brothers. And his father rebuked him. His father immediately understood the dream. You're trying to tell me that me, the son, the dad, the authority in the house, I'm going to bow down to you someday, son? You 17-year-old know-it-all teenager? Are you kidding me? So he rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Are you kidding? It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. 
Well, Jacob was wrong because 13 years later, that's exactly what happened. God providentially rose up this 17-year-old to become second in command in the land of Egypt and his dad, mom, and his brothers came and bowed the knee to Joseph as though he was king and pharaoh over the entire world headquartered in Egypt. Absolutely amazing. So this prophecy, this foundation is critical to Genesis, I mean to Revelation chapter 12 of what we're going to see there. Keep that imagery in mind. The son, that is Jacob, who became Israel. The moan, that is Joseph's mother. The stars, 11 stars. Joseph will also be a star. Those are the descendants of Israel who became the nation of Israel out of which would come the Messiah in keeping with Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. Very important. Let's go to Psalm 2, moving along in history. Psalm chapter 2. A lot of people read the psalm and say, oh, this is great. Or they think it's historical and it already happened. Actually, most of Psalm 2 is yet future. It's going to happen. Most of it will be fulfilled on earth in the future in response to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the millennium. This is a millennial psalm. This is when Jesus Christ literally isn't going to reign spiritually as pie in the sky invisibly. It's He's going to reign on earth literally for a thousand years. King Jesus, President Jesus. The only monarch. This is prophetic. This is fulfilled in the book of Revelation. One of the verses in Psalm 2 is quoted in our passage today in Revelation chapter 12. That's why I'm reading. I'm not making it up. Why are the nations in an uproar? So that the, the unbelieving Gentile nations are in a rage towards God. We've seen that already in the book of Revelation. They hate God. They hate Christ. They hate the Jews. They hate God's people. They hate Scripture. They hate truth. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, these are unbelieving, wicked, evil kings. They take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against God, and against His Messiah, the Anointed One. This is future. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven, God looks down, God the Father looks, and He just laughs. This is pathetic, what they're trying to do and devise. The Lord scoffs at His enemies then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury. He does that during the tribulation. But as for me, here's God talking. I have installed my king. This is prophetic of when God the Father installs Jesus Christ as the anointed king for a thousand years on the earth, fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20. I have installed my king upon Zion, the holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. This is the father talking to Jesus. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Here's what's quoted in Revelation 12. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Jesus is going to reign over earth with a, an iron fist. Perfectly and righteously without sin is the perfect and only perfect king that's ever ruled on planet earth. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges and rulers of the earth. Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Some translations say, kiss the sun. How appropriate. Worship Jesus the sun. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Wow. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Almost all of this is fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Okay, now to go to Daniel. Moving along in your Old Testament. Now we'll go from like, if this was a thousand years BC, now about 500 BC. Daniel's the Old Testament book of Revelation. Most of it is, uh, prophetic, referring to the future. A lot of it referring to the last seven years of the tribulation, specifically the Antichrist and how the Jews will be persecuted, especially in the last three and a half year period of the tribulation. A lot of similar imagery is used. And in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, just to remind you of a time frame that God gave, in Daniel chapter 9 told us how long the tribulation period would be. It's seven years because that's what Daniel 9.27 says. And he will make, he, probably the Antichrist, at the beginning of the seven year tribulation will make a firm covenant with the many, that's the Jews, for one week or literally one seven, that's seven years. The Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jews for seven years. In the middle of the the seven, not week, in the middle of the seven, that's the Hebrew word. In the middle of the seven years, that's three and a half years. Three and a half years. The middle of the seven is three and a half years. Three and a half years is 42 months. 42 months is 1260 days. 1260 days is a time, time, and half a time, which Daniel says in Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. So it's always consistent, stated in five different ways. 
in the middle of the week, the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to break his seven-year covenant with the Jews, and then he will he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering that's going to be going on at the time. The temple is going to be rebuilt, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Prophetic language talking about the rise of the Antichrist and his persecution. Now Daniel 12, this is the last one. Daniel 12, verse 1. Now at that time, so the context here is in the future during the tribulation. We know that. In the future during the tribulation at that time. Here's a specific incident that's going to happen. This incident is made uh, mention of in, in Revelation 12. That's why we're reading it. Now at that time in the future during the tribulation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Michael... Who's Michael? He is the great prince. Michael is also called in Jude verse 9, Michael the archangel. Michael is a good angel, an archangel. He is a uh, like a general in God's army of angels, in the hierarchy of angels in terms of authority and power and might. He is a superhero of the first order. Michael the archangel, he is the great prince. He has a specific job. He is the great prince who stands over the sons of your people. That's the, your people, that's Israel. Michael is a specially designated protector of the nation of Israel, always has been, and continue, and will continue to be, even we see, we see that in Revelation 12 in the future. Michael watches over Israel. So it doesn't matter if Yasser Arafat, who's five foot three, tried to destroy Israel and throw him into the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Yasser Arafat was shorter than Michael the archangel. And Michael the archangel is committed to preserving, protecting the Israelites. That's God's mission for him. And so during the tribulation, probably at the midpoint, Michael's going to get into a fight. And he's going to get in a fight. It's an angelic fight. It's a spiritual war. And Michael will rise up. And there will be a time of distress or tribulation such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This is unprecedented. The tribulation in the future is unprecedented. It is worldwide. It is universal. There's never been anything like it. And at that time, your people, that is the Jews, specifically the Israelites, God's people, God's covenant to them. And at that time in the future, during the tribulation, at the midpoint when there is this war with Michael, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. God's going to have special uh, initiation He's going to take to preserve and protect a remnant of believing Jews. And there's going to be a bunch of them. That's Israel's future. So that's our background. So keep those verses in mind as we read through uh, Revelation 12. Now go to Revelation chapter 12. And we'll pick up from where we were last week. And John has two new visions. And he was prepared prophetically in a couple of earlier chapters where God gave him all that information about the first three and a half years. And then God had him slow down, take a deep breath, eat the scroll, observe, observe my words, um, be prepared because what's about to come is even more furious than what you've already seen the last three and a half years. God's going to turn it into overdrive in terms of what's about to happen. The persecution from Satan, the wrath from God that's going to be poured out. It's going to be unprecedented, as I said. And so that's where we are right now. We are at uh, the time of the midpoint of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, what Jesus called the great tribulation in Matthew 24 and what John calls the great tribulation in Revelation 7. So here we are. And before he gets into the details of all that transpires in the Great Tribulation, especially at the end in the last three and a half year period with the last judgments, which are called the seven bowl judgments. Before he tells us the content of the bowl judgments, he wants to tell us, God does, what's behind the human actions of the bowl judgments. And it's a supernatural, divine, satanic power. It is Satan behind every godless, furious, tyrannical, human tyrant from Hitler all the way back to Pharaoh. They are nothing but a puppet. They are nothing but a puppet of Satan. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, says First John. Jesus said in John 8 to, to evil people, you are sons of the devil. Ephesians says the same thing. You are nothing but pawns and puppets of Satan and you don't even know it. So that's what's going on. It's a commercial from God's point of view to God's people to let us know who is really behind these horrible, wicked, evil events. And it is Satan himself. So that's why I call Revelation chapter 12 the legacy of Satan, because that's what it's all about. It's all about Satan. It's all about Jesus Christ as well. And by the, They're not equal forces either, as some religions would try to tell us. The dark side of the force, the light side of the force. Who's going to... No. Jesus is eternal. He is the creator. 
Satan is a created being. He was a good being, then he fell. He is finite. He is impotent in the face of God and of Christ. It's a no-brainer. But this is the legacy of Satan and how he energizes all that which is evil in the world. And with that, let me ask you a couple of practical questions. How often or how many times this week did you even think about Satan? It's a good question. Because as Christians, we're supposed to. The world wants to write him off as a fairy tale and not as a real being. But 1 Peter 5, 8 is clear. You know, beyond watch out, be Gregorious, says the text. Wake up, be awake, get your head up, get your eyes up, pay attention. Quit being asleep in a stupor, spiritually speaking, Peter says. Wake up, be on the alert for your enemy. And he personalizes it. Your enemy, Christian, your enemy, Christian, my enemy, the devil. Present tense, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Good challenge. How many times did you think about Satan this week? Seeking whom he may destroy. He is the destroyer. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your spiritual life. He wants to destroy your relationship and intimacy with God. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your job. He wants to destroy your reputation. He is the destroyer. He wants to undermine and destroy the church. He is hell-bent on it. How many times did you think about Satan this week? Next question. How many times did you pray for protection against the devil? Another great question. That's Matthew 6. Jesus said, here's how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And at the very end, he closes it by saying, and deliver us from, literally, the evil one. And some translations accurately say that. Deliver us from Satan. That was supposed to be a daily prayer for a Christian. God, deliver me from Satan and how he might attack, because he is on the attack. Relentless accuser of the brethren on the attack. We're going to see that from this text. So that's what this passage is about. It is about Satan. He's behind all that is evil. He's even behind false doctrine that comes our way and down the pike every single day. Incarnate evil. And he is real. So let's go ahead and look at it. The legacy of Satan and how that influences Uh, the present and even especially the future, the tribulation, what Christ is trying to do, and the people of God in the future, the nation of Israel. Three points that I tried to summarize it around are three hinges to hang your thoughts on theirs, if you will, in verses 1 through 17. And we'll take it a section at a time. Let's, Let's read through the first six verses, which is the first point about Satan. And it's, and it's hard to outline this because so much of it overlaps in terms of chronology, whether it's time past or present for John or in the future yet to be. And they're all kind of mingled, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. But with point one, number one is Satan on the earth for the most part. What he's been doing? What in the world has he been doing since he fell in the beginning before Genesis chapter three? After God created him as a good being. And we saw, uh, Ezekiel 28, uh, probably making a reference to the fall of Satan when he was a good angel and then became a bad angel because of sin. And then Isaiah 14 also describes possibly the fall of Satan. So what in the world has Satan been doing on planet Earth for these last 6,000 years? Well, we kind of get a glimpse of that in, in Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 6. Satan on the earth, he is the enemy of Christ. That's his main thing. For 4,000 years, Satan had one goal, and that was to be the enemy of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Uh, Satan could read. He knew Genesis 3:15. We know Satan knew Scripture because he quoted Scripture when he was confronting Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. He's quoting chapter and verse perfectly. Just had bad exegesis and application. But he knows Scripture. And he was aware of the promise made in Genesis 3.15 that a coming Messiah would come who would come and save the world from sin and at the same time crush Satan's head. So Satan is threatened. He is angry. He is furious. He hates the coming Messiah. He hates Christ and he's going to do everything he can. And he tried to for 4,000 years to eliminate Jesus Christ, to eliminate the Messiah. So let's go ahead and look at the first six verses. Uh, John tells us in a great sign. Sameon is the Greek word. We saw it in Gen- uh, Revelation 1 when John warned us that much of this information would come through prophetic apocalyptic signs. Like word pictures, sign language. But God uses signs, but he interprets these signs for us very specifically. Uh, so John has a vision with two signs. And they go together, these two signs. There's a sign in verse 1 and then a sign in verse 3. They go together. Uh, there was a great sign, an amazing sign, an unbelievable sign, a sign John had never seen before in an apocalyptic, prophetic vision. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. So that's the first thing he sees is this woman. She is clothed with the sun 
and the moon is under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars right out of Genesis 37. This woman was with child. She cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth and and another sign appeared in heaven and behold, man, get a load of this. You won't believe it is what he's saying. Behold, a great red dragon. Dragon was the most heinous kind of bestial monster that John could possibly think of the word dragon. This is where we get the, the Greek word is dracon, draconian. This ghastly, beastly dragon, fire red. Pyromaniac, we get that word from the word for red here. This fiery, blood red dragon. To make it even more heinous, he's got seven heads. That is weird. As we're going through this, by the way, if, Particularly to the kids, if you want to try to draw, you know, this picture of this dragon, I'd love to see your artwork. And uh, next week I'll give it back to you with prizes. But anyway, because it is a sign, sign language. It's visual. This is what he saw. This dragon having seven heads and ten horns. We don't know if the ten horns are on the seven heads or on one head. Passage later is going to tell us probably on one of the heads has ten horns. On his heads are seven diadems. Not crowns. Seven diadems. Uh, verse 4, in his tail, this dragon has a tail, metaphorically speaking, and with his tail he swept away a third of the stars of heaven and he threw the stars to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, the dragon might devour her child and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up or snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert where the where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. So I, the way I just summarized this is that uh, Satan on earth is the enemy of Christ. And there really is a chronology of world history as Satan has been active from verse 3 to verse 6 because it is chronological. It goes in order. It's sequential. Uh, it begins when he fell uh, and became a bad angel and the way he persecuted Israel all throughout Old Testament history and the way he tried to persecute Christ. And then it culminates in verse 6 of how, what he's going to do in the future during the tribulation. It's a 6,000-plus year history of Satan's activity on earth as the dragon. So let's go ahead and look at it, the main characters here, piece by piece. I've already kind of helped you out there. The main character here is a woman in verse 1. And there is a woman clothed with the sun, so it's this brilliant woman with authority. She, uh, The moon is under her feet. There's, She has a crown uh, of 12 stars. I think the New King James actually says she has a garland on her head. It doesn't use the word... Uh, Crown. Actually, the New King James Version does an excellent job by saying that because the word is Stephanos, and it is. It's it's a wreath. It was a wreath. It was not a crown of a king or someone in authority. It was a, a wreath given to somebody uh, as a reward. They have been rewarded. They have been recognized. They have been blessed. It doesn't come with inherent authority, ruling power. It's a different kind of crown. That's a diadem that we see in verse at the end of verse three. So there's. Two different words there, a Stephanos that this woman has on her head of reward and recognition, but then there's this crown of authority that's given in verse 3 to the dragon. Uh, so two different words regarding what they have on their head. So this woman, uh, the question is, who is this woman? And at some point over the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church, they said this woman is Mary. And that's their view today. The woman is Mary here. That is not in the text. That's not in the Old Testament. And that is distorting the text. And that is distorting the context. Uh, the woman is not Mary. But some reformers didn't do any better. And they had a, you know, they despised Roman Catholic theology and said, well, we'll do better. And some reformed theologians came along and said, well, actually, the woman isn't uh, Mary. The woman is the church. But the, woman, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Um, the church is not the mother of Jesus. The church is the... Bride of Jesus. So even some of them got it all messed up. Who is this woman? The woman is Israel. It is the nation of Israel. Galatians 4 says explicitly that Jesus the Messiah was born of the nation of Israel. And we know this from Genesis 37. That's the background and foundation. So uh, the woman is the nation of Israel. The son is Jacob who became Israel. Uh, the moon was the mother of the 12 sons or well, four of those 12 sons. Uh, and under her feet, and then those twelve stars are the twelve sons of Jacob. He had four women in his life, four wives. Yeah, that was sinful, but anyway, God overrides his evil to do all things for good, and God created the nation of Israel with those twelve 
offspring who are the 12 sons here. And what this is saying is that this woman, Israel, was pregnant with the Messiah and the nation of Israel gave birth to the Messiah and the nation of Israel was in pain, great labor. It says two different times in this passage that the woman was in great travail and great painful labor until she gave birth to the Messiah. And that is the history of Israel for 2,000 years before Jesus was born is Israel was suffering and Israel was persecuted and Israel was writhing and anguishing and being tormented until the coming of the Messiah. So it's very appropriate, very picturesque of the nation of Israel as they looked toward the coming of the Messiah. And that brings us to the next main character in this passage, and that is verse 2, this child. Who is the child? Well, the child is Jesus Christ. Explicitly and clearly we know that from the text. He came from the nation of Israel. He descended from them. Even Romans 9 says that explicitly. Also Romans 10 and other passages, Genesis chapter 4, that's where Jesus came from. He was a Jew of all Jews. Uh, it goes on in the text saying explicitly that uh, he would rule with a rod of iron. That is only true of Jesus, the Messiah. So the child is Jesus. So knowing that, Israel, for all these years, was pregnant with the Messiah in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Where the whole world would be blessed through a descendant of Abraham who would be the Messiah. The child Jesus, verse 2, and Israel was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared. Here's the next main character and that is the great red dragon. This whole chapter is about the dragon. The dragon is introduced in verse 3. The dragon is summarized in verse 17. This whole chapter, they're like bookends. The dragon, the dragon. The entire pericope is one entity, one unit. Chapter 12 is about the dragon and his hate for the Messiah and God's people. And this red dragon, like I said, he is ferocious, he is bloodthirsty, he is great, he's a monstrosity, he has seven heads, and this dragon is Satan, because the text is going to tell us that explicitly down in verse 9. So this is, Satan is being introduced as a dragon, the most despised of creatures on earth, and a historic enemy of God. He's got seven heads. Seven, many times, does refer in the book of Revelation to a to fullness of something, something with full throttle. But in this specific verse, the seven means something even more specific than that. It doesn't just mean to some generic power that Satan has. The seven heads actually refer to specific entities that have names. And we're going to see that when we get to Revelation 17, where John tells us what the seven heads of the dragon are. He just says, these seven heads are seven kingdoms run by seven kings. Five have already passed. One is, one shall be. So these seven heads represent seven pagan, anti-Semitic world nations run by vicious, murderous tyrants all throughout history. Five have passed, says Revelation 17. So who are the satanically inspired heads who have been world empires throughout history? Five which have passed. It started with Egypt, right? Remember Pharaoh, wanted, he hated the Jews, enslaved them, wanted to kill all those babies. So there was Egypt and then came Assyria after that and sacked Jerusalem or uh, Israel in 722 and following and Sennacherib and all the other wicked Assyrian kings. And then after that, there was Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So that's the third empire. And John knew all this. He knew history. It's in Scripture. Then after that was Medo-Persia in the days of Esther. Tried to wipe out the Jews, spearheaded by Haman. And then after uh, Medo-Persia, there was Greece and Alexander the Great and all of his company and all of his descendants. Part of his descendants being Herod the Great who tried to slaughter Jesus and all the Jews in that uh, surrounding area because he wanted to kill the Messiah. So those are the five evil uh, Jewish Christ-hating nations that were not on just a human level but inspired by Satan himself. That's the point. They are puppets. So that is the dragon. It is Satan who hates Christ. And that's what's going on here. He's not, in, in this passage, verses 1 through 6, it's not the dragon's lining up because he wants to kill Israel. He's lined up waiting for that baby to be born so he could devour that baby and kill the baby. He is after Jesus up to that time. That is his emphasis. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns. By the way, the ten horns refers to a future kingdom at the time of the Antichrist. We know that later on from the book of Daniel and also Revelation 17. And on his heads were seven diadems. This is a different word for crown than in verse 1. Diadems. Ruling power. Ruling authority. Did you know that Satan has delegated ruling power and authority? He does. He, has a, he is the prince of the power of the air right now. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, Satan. That's a delegated authority. He got it from God. He's going to be accountable for perverting that authority. So he rules with authority. 
It's a confined authority. It's a restrained authority. It's an accountable authority. But it's a supernatural, spiritual, vast, powerful authority. That's Satan. He is real. Verse 4. Here's his history. I believe this refers to the fall of Satan. He was created by God according to Isaiah. Actually, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He was created by God. Uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 give us details of how he went from becoming a good angel to a bad angel. It was from sin, disobedience, and pride wanting to be like God. And he was cast down and cursed by God beyond redemption. And God created hell specifically to confine Satan in hell for all eternity. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said that God created hell for the devil and his angels. And verse 4 is the fall of Satan, spiritually speaking. There are two falls in this passage. Don't get them confused. One is past, one is yet future. Verse 4 is the past fall of Satan. Satan's tail as a dragon swept a third of the stars of heaven. Satan, who wears a crown, has authority. And apparently Satan had authority over a designated number of angels. That's quite a lot of power. And he took a third, or whatever it was, uh, he took a third of the stars. Stars are angels. Job calls angels stars. We saw earlier in Revelation 9, an angel was called a star. So Satan took a third of the stars with him from heaven. And they fell and became evil. They became demons. And notice, God didn't throw them to the earth. Satan threw these stars to the earth. To the earth just means out of the realm of the immediate presence of God in heaven. And now they're in the heavenlies. And the heavenly domain is a supernatural domain that has access apparently at times to heaven where God is and also immediately to the earth. The heavenlies, says Ephesians. So right now that's where seven, uh, Satan reigns supreme in the heavenlies, the spiritual realm, having one foot at his disposal in heaven when God allows and another foot down on planet earth to torment human beings. So that was his fall. So he was thrown down into the heavenly realms where he could still do damage to people on earth. And there he roams like a vicious roaring lion and the dragon stood. And and what does he do? Well, one of his goals throughout history, the dragon, Satan, stood before Israel all throughout history, stood there waiting. And that's that's how a dragon stands when it's ready to prowl and attack. So they tell me. I've never seen a dragon, but anyway... So this dragon is ready to pounce. Even a snake, a serpent, because the dragon is a serpent-like creature, and when a snake is ready to pay, it crouches up. Stood before Israel, the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth to the Messiah, Satan might devour her child. And that's exactly what Satan tried to do, right? When Jesus was born. Through Herod. And Herod made an edict to slaughter all these baby boys. Two years and under. In hopes of killing the newborn Messiah. That was satanically inspired. And it happened, verse 5, and she gave birth to a son. Jesus was born. In the fullness of time, Jesus was born, says Galatians 4. Jesus was born. He was a male child, just like Hebrew, or Genesis 3.15 said. It would be a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, just as Psalm 2.9 predicted, and also Genesis 49. And Israel's child, not Mary's child, Israel, the nation of Israel's child, the Messiah, as Anna prophesied and prayed about, and Simeon as well in the Gospel of Luke, the child of Israel, and Satan's child, I mean, sorry, in Israel's child, Jesus was caught up, snatched up to God and to his throne. That is the ascension. So he just kind of summarizes here and he skips all of Jesus' life because we got that in the Gospels and he says uh, that At the right time, God snatched up Jesus, and that's at the ascension. At the resurrection and the ascension, that word for snatched up is the same word for rapture, that where the church will be raptured, harpazo, great word. And so here Satan's been waiting all along, all these years, and finally he's going to pounce on Jesus the Messiah, and he doesn't get to because Jesus is victorious. Jesus rejects the temptation of Satan. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus rises from the dead. He conquers death and the devil, sin, hell, the world. He ascends on high. He reigns as king and king. This infuriates Satan. He is enraged with every unfolding step of God's redemptive plan. We're going to see that his fury just grows through this chapter. He becomes insane with rage. Uh, Verse 6, and then the woman, that's Israel. Okay, now we're catapulted into the future. So everything up to verse 5 was historic and already happened. Then we're catapulted in the future The context is the tribulation and specifically the last three and a half years of the tribulation because that's what the end of verse 6 says. 
That time period now that he's talking about is that 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, 42 months. A time, time, half a time. The three and a half year tribulation. Verse 14 says at the end, a time and times and half a time. A three and a half year period. So there's a huge gap of time between verses 5 and 6. Thousands of years are between verses 5 and 6, if you will, and that's common in prophetic literature. And in the future, the woman, that is Israel, the nation of Israel that God will bring together, that God will protect, that God will watch over, that He will reinstate in fulfillment the promises in the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Israel will flee in the future during the time of the tribulation in obedience to Jesus' command in Matthew 24 when He warned the Jews in the tribulation, run, flee to the mountains. That's what He said. They're going to obey. Israel is going to flee into the wilderness. Well, I thought Jesus said flee to the mountains. Well, He did. Did you know that there are mountains in the wilderness at times? Hence, in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when the Israelites went to the wilderness, they went to the Mount of Sinai. So at some point in the future, the Jews, to run away from Satan and his torture, are going to flee into the wilderness and hide in the mountains in fulfillment to the prophecy that Jesus made to protect themselves from Satan who is enraged and bloodthirsty. And so when they went, run into the wilderness in the future, uh, Israel is going to have a place prepared by God. Isn't that amazing? Prepared by God. So that there she might be nourished, literally fed for three and a half years. God is going to prepare a place in the future during the time of the tribulation in the last three and a half years where He's going to protect the nation of Israel, God's people, somewhere there in the promised land, in the wilderness, in the nooks, in the rocks, in the mountains. And God is specifically going to feed them probably supernaturally as He did to the Israelites for 40 years in the desert with manna from heaven. He's going to have to because Revelation says in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, it is impossible to buy or sell without the mark of the beast on your wrist or your forehead. And these believing Jews will resist the mark. Therefore, they can't be involved. They can't even buy food. They will starve to death. And God is supernaturally going to provide for His people. He is the great provider. That's what he's going to do. God's going to have this set-apart place where they're going to be fed by God and nourished and taken care of and wooed and protected and cared for so that there she might be nourished for how long? Three and a half years. 1,260 days. That is the future. Actually, that's the past, the present, and the future of Christ and His people. With respect to Satan, let's go on to point number two of what's going to happen in the future. And that's 7 through 12. And there was a war in heaven... Michael and his angels. See, this is coming right from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 that we read earlier. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. There was war in heaven. The context in Daniel 12, 1 was during this war happens in the tribulation period. Probably the midpoint of the tribulation or around there. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with Satan. It's a spiritual war. And the dragon, Satan, and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for Satan and his angels in the heavenly places. And the great dragon Satan was thrown down. Three times it says he was thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. It is emphatic. Uh, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Notice the past tense being used there. He was thrown down. He was thrown down. He was, yet this is still a future event. That is called proleptic language. It's a future event spoken in past tense to make it emphatic as though it is guaranteed and ensured. John keeps doing that. This is a future event. This is prophecy. This is common nomenclature for prophetic language. So Satan, in the future, during the tribulation, is going to be thrown down because of Michael the archangel, the protector of the people of Israel and his good angels. Verse 10. And then there's a commercial break as John is having this prophecy and all of a sudden all the angels and everybody around, they're, they're seeing of the demise of Satan. And finally! Finally, so they get to see the end. They get to see the victory. We need that to be encouraged, don't we? In the midst of the battle, man, just tell me the good news. How's it going to end? So I can persevere and go on. And that's what God does throughout Revelation. He keeps giving these encouraging pictures of what it's going to be like in the end when Jesus wins. And as a result, everybody in heaven or all the saints are going to, they rejoice in anticipation. So this hasn't happened yet. This is going to happen. They're rejoicing about what is going to happen. Verse 10 and following. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil 
has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time, three and a half years, and he knows it. That is a short time in light of world history. So that's point number two, which is Satan in the heavenlies. And there he functions primarily as the enemy of the saints. He missed Christ. So now for the last 2,000 years, what has he been doing? He's been harassing believers. He's been harassing the saints. He's been harassing you and harassing me before the throne of God. But let's look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. So I believe this is speaking of the future during the time of the tribulation up in heaven. This angelic war. Michael and his angels in one corner weighing in at probably a lot of pounds. And then over in the other corner, Satan and his demons. And they go at it. This is not the first time that Michael got and duked it out with Satan himself. Because Jude, the book, that little book just before Revelation, Jude verse 9, listen to this. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, so he got into a fight or an argument with the devil at some time in the past. And what did he argue with Satan about? He argued with the devil about the body of Moses. They argued. Michael said to Satan, I want his body. And then Satan said, no, you can't have it. It's mine. And then, and then uh, Michael said, no, I want it. And then he, uh, Satan said, no, I want it. And they just kept doing this. Tug of war on Moses' dead body. That's kind of, but anyway. And that's why we don't know where Moses' body was buried. It's kind of a mystery. But Michael, even though he's an archangel, he, he didn't uh, assume too much when he was dealing with Satan because he knew that Satan was a very, very, very powerful demon and dealt with him in a very cautious manner, trusting himself to God's power when dealing with the devil. Uh, and so there was war in heaven. This is going to be in the future. Michael's going to go at it with Satan and his angels. Michael is going to win. And Michael is going to take Satan and he's going to throw him out of the heavenlies. So no longer is Satan going to be allowed to roam around in the heavenlies in the spiritual realm doing what he's doing now. He'll be confined only to the earth. That's yet future. So his power once again will be limited. And he's going to be angry about that. Verse 8, And so they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for him up in the heavenlies. Verse 9, And the great dragon Satan was thrown down, the serpent of old. See, specifically we know this is the devil, this is Satan. He's the serpent of old. He was the snake in the garden. He spoke through the snake. He's a liar from the beginning and a murderer. He's also called the devil, which is the slanderer, the accuser, the false accuser. That's what That's his very character. He's actually a lawyer is the term. Satan, which is a Hebrew word and... Slanderer, which is a Greek word, means the same thing. Satan and devil. He's a slanderer. He's a lawyer. He's making accusations. And he's, unlike most lawyers, he's a bad lawyer. That was a joke. But anyway, uh, he's an evil lawyer. He's a twisted lawyer. He's a false accuser. He doesn't abide by justice and the law and truth. He is the slanderer. He lies about you. Don't you hate it when people talk about you behind your back and say wrong things? And untruths, that's what he does. And he does it to God, just like in Job. He brings a false case to God as a corrupt lawyer to bring guilt upon you, shame upon you, so that you question your relationship with God and Jesus Christ. He's a slanderer. That's why he's called the devil and Satan. What else does he do? He deceives the whole world. That's what he does. That's present tense. That's what he does. He deceives. He tries to deceive everybody. He deceives unbelievers. He deceives believers. You may have been deceived this week. I may have been deceived by Satan this week. That's, what he, that's how he lulls people. So he lulls them into tripping up and stumbling and sinning. And then, boom, got you. And then he accuses you. He's got a plan. He's a liar. So he's a tempter and a deceiver and then a false accuser. By the way, oh, it goes on. Uh, deceiving the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. This is in the future. And his angels will be thrown down with him. Uh, and then uh, the people in heaven rejoice. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. So that's one of the first signs that Christ's kingdom is here is when Satan finally is thrown down out of the heavenlies and his power is limited. And one of the powers that Satan is going to lose when he's thrown down from the heavenlies to be restricted only to the earthly realm is he no longer has access to heaven and the kingdom of God where he can voice his false accusations as he did in the book of Job when he started lying about Job to God who's in heaven. He won't be able to do that during the time of the tribulation at the end. He's going to lose that power. He won't be the accuser of the brethren anymore during that three and a half year period. Because he'll be thrown down. He is the accuser of our present tense. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. What, what in the world? He accuses them. He accuses the brethren. He accuses believers before God day and night. It is ceaseless. It is nonstop. 
He never relents. That's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. He will continue to do that till the midpoint of the tribulation. He will continue to falsely accuse believers before God. And at this time during the tribulation, that power will be taken away. And he's going to become even more furious at that. He will become enraged, as I said earlier. Verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. And that's referring to these martyrs, probably in Revelation 6.10 and other people who get murdered for their faith in the tribulation. They love Jesus Christ. They profess Jesus Christ. They're even willing to die for Jesus Christ the blood of the Lamb, and they are saved by His death and resurrection. And they're not even afraid of Satan himself. They're not afraid of the Antichrist or death. Because they go immediately into heaven. Verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So here's this call to believers everywhere to rejoice at the future, the demise of Satan, the reign of Christ. It's even time now to celebrate that great truth. But woe to the earth in the future of those in particular who are on the earth in the last three and a half years of the tribulation who reject Christ. There's a woe. Woe to the earth and the sea, those on the terrestrial body called earth because the devil has come down to you and he's got three and a half years and having great wrath, having great rage. It's this emotional pent up rage that is irrational and demonically inspired that's what's going to drive him. Why? Because he knows that he only has a short time. Three and a half years is all I got left. That is Satan. That's the future. That's how he's going to act in the last three and a half years. And the rest of the book of Revelation is going to tell us exactly how Satan does that. Let's go on to the last point, And that is Satan in the tribulation specifically. Primarily, he's going to be an enemy of Israel. He missed out on Christ. That was his main goal. He missed it. Jesus died, lived, I mean, born, lived the perfect life. Died in fulfillment of Scripture, rose again, ascended on high, reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of the universe. So now all Satan can do, okay, if I can't get to the child, then I'll pick on the mother. And the mother is Israel. And this is going to culminate in the future during the tribulation, which the book of Jeremiah prophesied would be called the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation period, especially the last three and a half years, is called the time of Israel's trouble. And it's primarily trouble not so much from God's point of view, but because of Satan who was just unleashed in his fury and hatred towards Israel. So let's go ahead and look at it during the tribulation and Satan's fury towards the Jews. That's not going to be anything new, right? That somebody hates the Jews? Because it's true today, isn't it? Uh, verse 13, And when the dragon or Satan saw that he was thrown down to the, to the earth from the heavenlies, this is still future. He persecuted the woman. He is going to be persecuting the nation of Israel during the time of the tribulation. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, the Messiah. But God is going to watch over believing Israel during the time of the tribulation in fulfillment of Genesis 12 and all the other hundreds of prophecies made to Israel that God would protect them and be their people eternally and fulfill all those promises that are yet unfulfilled. Verse 14, God isn't going to allow Satan to harm all of them because first of all, he's going to have a specific place to hide them in the desert somewhere or in the deserted area in the mountains. And he's going to nourish them and take care of them. But there's going to be a mass of people. How do you get maybe potentially millions of Jews somewhere very quickly? Well, supernaturally, that's what God's going to do. He's going to bring in a 747. It's got to be bigger because it's got to fit more people. Verse 14 says, And the two wings of the great eagle were given to Israel in, so that it's like Jewish airlines. I don't know what it is. But God is going to do it. It's going to be supernatural. It's going to be providentially timed. Two wings. They're massive. This great bird is going to be given to the nation of Israel in order that she might fly or f flee into the wilderness in a moment's time to her secret place to get away from Satan. Is it an airplane? I don't know, but it could be. All we know is God's going to do it. And He's going to be successful. And there she's going to be nourished how long? For a time, times, and half a time. A time is one year, times is two years, half a time. That's half a year. That's three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. Half of seven years. And they're going to be hidden and protected by God from the presence of Satan. And Satan is going to try to chase them uh, like a, mal a cat uh, is chasing a mouse into the hole and doesn't get to it. And then he's going to become enraged again. And so he realizes, I can't get to them. They're hiding in the rocks. So I'm going to bail and I'm going to go persecute the, the offspring and the seed and those other people that are related to these people who are protected, these Jews being protected in the desert. Verse 15. But first he's going to try to flush them out, literally, of the rocks and the mountains in the desert. The serpent, Satan, somehow, maybe supernaturally, is going to pour water like a river out of his mouth, whatever his source is, uh, after the woman Israel, and try to flush Israel out of the mountains and the crevices of the rocks. 
uh, so that uh, Satan might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But he's going to be unsuccessful because God is the one protecting. And God's going to do a miracle in verse 16. The earth helped the woman. The earth helped the woman. God is the creator of the earth. He's in charge of the earth. And he will say, earthquake now. Boom. And probably a supernatural earthquake has happened in the Old Testament when God did that among Israel. Verse 16, the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth. That's what I call an earthquake. And drank up the river of water that Satan the dragon poured out intending to flush the Israelites out of the desert, out of the mountain crevices. Ain't going to work. So God will protect them. And then verse 17, so once again, Satan's plans are thwarted. He cannot destroy the nation of Israel. He cannot eradicate the blessed seed of Abraham. He becomes enraged, and so he gives up for a time or in a way. In verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with Israel in the future. So he's going to go off and he's going to make war with the rest of her offspring. He's going to go off and make war with other Jews. Well, what other Jews are Roman planet Earth during the tribulation in the last three and a half years? We already saw it. It was the 144,000 Jews who were sealed by God to go out and be his witnesses. And those witnesses, they don't have to hide from Satan because they were sealed, which meant they were protected by God, at least for a three and a half year period. So that's what's going to happen. So he's going to, okay, fine, can't get them. I'm going to go after these 144,000 Jews and see if I can mess with those Jews. And he's going to try. The dragon was enraged with the woman in Israel, and so he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. I would say probably those 144,000 Jews They are the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. They are going to be faithful even in the face of torture, persecution, and the full venting of Satan's wrath, unbridled. Amazing. That takes us back to the future. Isn't that amazing? So, well, how do you respond to this, Pastor Cliff? And and how do you make revelation and all this weird imagery and all this future stuff practical? How is it pertinent to me? Well, I just thought of a couple things. We'll close with these. Here's how we can apply the truths of Revelation 12 and Revelation in general. And I'll say this again and again. Uh, practical application number one is believe it. Believe it. Some people will say, no, this is too fanciful. All these miracles, this Satan stuff. No, it's Scripture. It's God's Word. It happened in history. It'll happen in the future. God is in charge. This is how it is. This is reality. Believe it. Another point that we can do. Well, this passage, I think, teaches us to have an eternal perspective, right? To see the big picture to lift our head up, to not be myopic, to see the finish line, to see the big picture, to see how heaven orchestrates all the events of world history, even the personal events in my life, even in the hard times. So have an eternal perspective, not a here and now. The Christian life is not a hundred-yard dash, is it? It's It's a marathon, and it's a long one, isn't it? So have an eternal perspective. Another thing is we are reminded that God is in control. Even in the midst of all these bad things, God's in control, right? Satan is real, he's vicious, he's wicked, he's a murderer, but God is still in control. God is on the throne, God is in charge, and God even turns bad things into good things. God doesn't say bad things are good. Don't confuse or mess up Romans 8.28. God takes evil bad things and turns them into good to fulfill his purposes for his people. God is in control, no matter what is going on in world history. No matter what is going on in politics. God's in control. Everything's according to plan. That's why God, you know, Psalm 2, God looks down on earth. He is not worried or concerned. One yeah, he's laughing. It's all according to plan. Praise, praise the Lord. Uh, another thing, be aware of Satan. These passages remind us that Satan is alive and well on planet earth, a vicious, roaring lion that wants to destroy you, destroy me, destroy the church. Be mindful of him. Pray against him. Another practical application, evaluate your view of the nation of Israel. This is God's people. With all this news, depending upon what news you watch, you're going to be fed from the secular, humanistic, atheistic media that Israel is bad. The Jews are bad. They don't deserve the land. They're evil. Uh, temper that with what Scripture says about God's historic plan for the nation of Israel, His covenant to them, His promises to them. Your Messiah, Jesus, who is a Jew, and God's future for Israel. And go back to Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. God hasn't reneged that promise. So that's a really practical application. And finally, um, and this is the best one, we can thank Jesus for the victory. Amen? Amen. And that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is the reason for the season and Jesus wins. He is the victor. And if you know him personally, you win too. And with that, let's thank God. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Time to worship, time to study your word. 
which is complex. So thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. Thank you for saints who have gone before us. Who you enlighten to be our teachers for salvation that allows us to have illumined minds to understand truth. And so many scriptures to go to uh, to also fill in the dark spots for us. And so that we indeed can know truth because we have the mind of Christ. And we can know about now and how Satan operates and how you will overcome him and our future. It's all secure in you. We thank you for that. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.